KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, John Nichols on Tuesday's primaries and the deluge of money from the Israel lobby paying for ads attacking progressives. Also, Chase Boudin, the elected district attorney of San Francisco, will talk about progressive prosecutors and their opponents. Progressive prosecutors have been pushing for criminal justice reform for a while now, seeking to end mass incarceration and deal with police conduct. Of course, the defeated law and order forces have been pushing back. In San Francisco, opponents have collected enough signatures to force a recall vote on Chase Boudin on June 7th. But first, this week's primaries reap the news about Republicans, sort of like news from another planet. For that, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, let's start with Pennsylvania, tipping point state in American politics, voted for Obama twice, then for Trump in 2016, then for Biden in 2020, all by very narrow margins. It's been changing a lot over the past decade. And right now, it's our best chance to flip a Republican seat in the Senate. And of course, one more Democratic seat in the Senate would be huge. It would mean everything else remaining equal. Joe Manchin no longer gets to decide everything. We are speaking on Wednesday afternoon when Dr. Oz is a few votes ahead Trump endorsed him at the last minute. If elected, Dr. Oz would become America's first Muslim senator, endorsed by Donald Trump, but the contest doesn't seem to be over at this hour. Tell us about what's going on in the Republican Senate primary in Pennsylvania. Well, Oz's lead over a more traditional Republican uh, is about 2,000 votes out of, uh, at this juncture, probably a little more than a million that have been counted. Uh, But I think there's still uh, about 7% of the vote uh, that has not yet been counted, including late arriving mail ballot. The the Democratic race was won decisively by John Fetterman on the same day uh, that he got uh, a defibrillator implanted in his heart, uh, which probably sets some kind of uh, Guinness <laughs> Book thing for American American politics. And uh, he's one of the reasons why Pennsylvania is considered uh, a flippable state come November. The alternative to Dr. Oz, if he doesn't make it, is this David McCormick, a former hedge fund manager who spent more than $15 million. He lived in Connecticut until last last year. He's been a champion of social justice initiatives at his hedge fund. He supported Democrats in the past, and he called the January 6th riot a dark chapter in American history. Uh, so we there's a Republicans in Pennsylvania had a clear choice, and they seem cleanly divided. Uh, They do, although uh, they had a clean choice on the gubernatorial line as well, and they went uh, uh, in in voting for uh, Mastriano, not only for a Trump-endorsed candidate, uh, but a candidate who not only didn't condemn the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol, but actually went down to D.C. in January 6th 
to join the uh, overturn the election rally that Trump held at the White House. Paid for buses also to bring more people. And this is one of a number of reasons why uh, the Democratic Attorney General of the state, Josh Shapiro, who uh, won the Democratic gubernatorial nomination yesterday, in fact, was unopposed, is widely favored to win the gubernatorial election in Pennsylvania, which would not be a flip. Pennsylvania already has uh, a Democratic governor, but uh, Shapiro uh, would also be a Democratic governor. I should add for what it's worth, but I I should add uh, in a particular footnote to American political history that Pennsylvania has an interesting history of electing Jewish Democratic governors going back at least to Milton Chap current Governor Wolf and uh, the heavily favored uh, Josh Shapiro uh, come November. Of course, if Josh Shapiro were to lose and Mastriano were to become governor, he has said that he would seek to decertify the 2020 results for his state. <laughs> and uh, he has previously supported the state legislature appointing electors in defiance of the state popular vote. So a governor Mastriano could very well lead to the overturning of the 2024 presidential election. So it's very important to us and to the world that Josh Shapiro wins a Christian nationalist versus a Jewish liberal. Interesting matchup. I noticed that the Republican Governors Association, after the announcement that calling the election for Mastriano, the Republican Governors Association, instead of congratulating him enthusiastically, issued the the following statement. The RGA remains committed to engaging in competitive gubernatorial contests, period, close quote. How would you interpret that? Uh, That probably means that they have at least uh, 49 other states they would rather spend their money in than uh, throw their money uh, after Mastriano in in Pennsylvania. I, I should also add that if you look at how Mastriano did county by county, He did not win uh, crucial Philadelphia suburbs that are considered sort of the largest swing counties in the state. Uh, One of many things that does not augur well for his prospects. And if we could just go back to the Senate race for a minute in Dr. Oz, to put it mildly, unusual for the Republican candidate to be a Muslim the biggest mark against him among many Republican voters is that he's not a Christian white nationalist. The question is, will the Trump base vote for a Muslim who also has said positive things about abortion rights? And uh, he's been called a Hollywood liberal by his opponent. Well, I mean, it's an interesting question. The uh, prevailing wisdom among Democratic consultants in in Pennsylvania, that is that it will be easier for Fetterman to beat Oz than it would for him than to beat McCormick. I've never been entirely sure about that, but there is certainly a core of Republicans who clearly would have to swallow very hard to vote for Oz. And, you know, pairing him up with Mastriano, who is the Christian nationalist, uh, is, is interesting to see how that relationship, if any, will develop between now and November. Let's keep in mind that this was a three-way race and that a, uh, an African-American woman, uh, actually who, who 
has been clobbered in her previous runs for lower offices, uh, got uh, who was and who was endorsing positions that put her to the right of both uh, uh, McCormick and uh, and Oz, you know, took a quarter of the vote. And so even if Oz wins, which looks like a distinct possibility, he only got a third of the Republican vote. You know, whereas Fetterman running uh, against a serious challenger, uh, Connor Lamb, uh, got 60% of the vote. So Oz does not enter, if it's Oz, Oz does not enter the runoff in November uh, with with a much of a wind at his back. And let's talk about Ohio. We care a lot about Ohio. It's possible, maybe, that the Democrats could win the uh, Senate seat there. They Republicans are going to run J.D. Vance, the author of Hillbilly Elegy, who transformed himself from a never-Trump guy into a passionate uh, America First candidate. He mainly got in, as far as I can tell, because his former boss, Peter Thiel, the billionaire founder of PayPal, contributed $10 million to his campaign. Vance has never been elected to anything before. He will face Tim Ryan, a Democrat who's been in the House since 2003. What kind of a race is this going to be between hillbilly elegy author J.D. Vance and longtime Democratic liberal Tim Ryan? Well, Ryan is trying to do uh, what only one Ohio Democrat has been able to do, and that is Sherrod Brown. Uh, and, and that is, uh, you know, really uh, defend and raise the profile of working class Ohioans, uh, Buckeyes, I guess, uh, you know, and <laughs> in, in, uh, being uh, uh, like Brown, someone who opposed uh, uh, previous free trade agreements with NAFTA, with PNTR, with China, and, uh, and so on. He is not uh, an across-the-board liberal as Sherrod Brown is. He has been uh, more conservative on uh, what are called cultural questions. Uh, and I think, you know, actually in this day and age, that puts him in a stronger position in Ohio. Still, Ohio is a state that went Republican pretty seriously in 2020. And it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a stretch. I think uh, Wisconsin may prove to be uh, a better possibility for a Democratic pickup, where Ron Johnson is has been the far right Republican senator, presumably running for re-election, uh, and the primary has yet to be held among a series of Democrats. But Ohio is uh, is is in the maybe category. Let me add one thing, by the way. F- Fetterman in Pennsylvania, uh, who supported Bernie in 2016, a down the line economic progressive, but not someone who you can easily accuse of being woke. And, you know, and the guy looks like uh, a sort of a uh, Hulk Hogan on a serious diet, not as, not, not as big, but as tall and with a shaved head and the goatee and wearing a hoodie and shorts. So uh, uh, there are, you know, there, what we see in Ryan and Fetterman are uh, different ways to attempt to reach the alienated working class. We'll see how much either of them works. This week also, uh, President Biden went to Buffalo and gave a powerful speech condemning uh, white racism. I think we need should talk for a minute about how Republicans are campaigning more openly as the party of white nationalism, re- advancing this white replacement theory, which 
We are uh, told um, Tucker Carlson, the star of Fox News, has presented the white replacement theory as an issue for Republicans in 400 different episodes of his show. This is the idea that the Democrats want <clears throat> millions of dark-skinned immigrants into the country so they can vote and replace white people and take over uh, America. Liz Cheney also this week criticized her own party for enabling uh, white supremacy. And indeed, it's not, not just a couple of these candidates, but elected Republicans currently in the leadership of the House, for example, who seem quite friendly um, uh, to this. I, I first heard of the replacement theory in 2017, when there was that neo-Confederate demonstration in Charlottesville and white nationalists marched past the synagogue chanting, the Jews will not replace us. And I never heard this before, but it turns out it is a staple feature of this far right-wing ideology, which has resurfaced in various other, you know, the Pittsburgh Tree of Life synagogue, the 2019 mass shooting in El Paso. An Associated Press poll last week found that half of Republicans agree at least in part with the idea that there is an intentional effort by Democrats to crowd out white Americans with immigrants. This is pretty scary stuff. It is. Uh, and, you know, we need to be cognizant. And if you go back in American history, uh, we are a nation that's been built by successive wave of immigrants and thems as got there before each successive wave often have expressed uh, this, this kind of phobia uh, directed certainly by uh, the Protestants against first the Irish uh, and then the Italians uh, and the Jews. It's one of the things that led to the uh, exclusionary law against immigration from China in the 1880s and from Eastern and Southern Europe in the 1920s, which was on the books until the mid-1960s. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a recurrent uh, theme in American history and uh, often one that leads to uh, violence, as, as we've seen in just in the past, uh, just in the past week. Uh, yeah, Nick Confessori's terrific three-part New York Times piece on Tucker Carlson just documented 400 times that the, the, the guy has raised this, and it's part of his affinity for uh, uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary and honestly still Vladimir Putin in Russia. Of course, there is some truth to the idea that people of color are more likely to vote Democratic these days, but why is that? Well, uh, partly because of this kind of, uh, of politics in the Republican Party. When uh, the Republican Party is white nationalist, uh, you get the sense that you're not the most welcome people uh, around. Uh, so, you know, I mean, you know, th there's been so much conventional wisdom about how democratic cultural politics and identity politics have repelled all kinds of voters. Well, Republican politics tend to repel, uh, vote, you know, potential voters of color. And uh, more recently, uh, women concerned about uh, their ability to, to control their own bodies. So uh, one of the th interesting things about the upcoming November election is the quote, culture wars, culture wars will play a real part, but given that we can subsume the right to an abortion under, under that rubric, 
it's not really clear at all that it's going to work in the Republicans' favor this year. Well, we have a couple minutes left here, and I know you wanted to talk about uh, progressive House candidates in some key races uh, this week. Well, I know John Nichols is is going to talk about uh, how uh, both APAC and just generally corporate Democratic PACs uh, were trying to defeat uh, several of these candidates, but there have been two apparent notable victories, uh, one for uh, uh, an open house seat in the Pittsburgh area, where uh, progressive African-American legislator uh, Summer Lee uh, appears to have narrowly defeated uh, one of these uh, corporate APEC-backed candidates uh, uh, for whom there was tremendous spending, uh, narrowly uh, victorious over that. The other in, uh, in an Oregon district Uh, where a longtime incumbent, Kurt Schrader, who uh, has taken a great deal of money from the pharmaceutical industry and has sought to weaken uh, Democratic efforts to claw back uh, the prices of drugs. Here's, you know, they're they're counting mail ballots. It takes a while, a little only a little over half. Kurt Schrader appears to be losing by a, a 60, 40 margin to a progressive uh, insurgent, uh, Jimmy McLeod Skinner. And again, he got not only uh, support of traditional pro-corporate Democratic PACs, but unfortunately of President Biden himself, uh, based on what criteria, I am not sure, uh, since he has not been really a a fan of much of the Biden economic, economic agenda. And I'm not aware that Biden endorsed any other Democrats in the House primaries. So far, he is not. So far, he is not. And, you know, next week, we have a a similar challenge in uh, in a runoff in Texas uh, between Henry Cuellar, the incumbent who not only is the really the only clear uh, anti-choice Democrat in the House, but also the only Democrat in the House to vote against the PRO Act. Uh, which would have made it easier for American workers to unionize. He's being challenged by Jessica Cisneros, who is uh, supported by uh, most uh, progressive organizations. And we will see how that goes. Now, the House leadership feeling, I presume, under some obligation to support all incumbents, has made clear their support for Cuellar, even though there's no Democrat in the House who has voted more times against the consensus Democratic agenda than Henry Cuellar. Harold Meyerson, read him at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for reporting today. Okay, good to see you. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. On the Democratic side, progressives ran some terrific candidates in swing states, and then they were attacked, not by Republicans, but by centrist and establishment and corporate Democrats who ran aggressive attack ads on TV, funded by APAC, the Israel lobby. For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. John, welcome back. It's great to be with you, John. 
Well, the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, APAC, has a new super PAC, and they spent millions of dollars on attack ads on progressives uh, leading up to this week's primaries. I think it pretty much unprecedented level of spending in Democratic primaries. So the question today is, did it work? Uh, let's start with Summer Lee. You've written about her for The Nation. She's campaigning in Pittsburgh for an open Democratic seat in the House. She was endorsed by Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and AOC. And then APAC and its super PAC, as well as another one called Democratic Majority for Israel, spent more than $3 million to uh, defeat her. Tell us about Summer Lee with 100% of the vote in. I think she's still got an 862-vote lead. So it looks like Summer Lee will be the first black woman ever to represent Pennsylvania in Congress. Summer Lee is a remarkable candidate on a, on a whole bunch of levels. And I've written about her a number of times. In fact, uh, interviewed her many times over the last several years because um, she really stands out. She is a lawyer, uh, an organizer, someone who ran a very tough race for the state legislature several years ago, got elected, and then instead of just going off to Harrisburg and being a legislator, she really established kind of a new model for uh, an elected official in the Pittsburgh area. She turned a great deal of her energy back into local organizing to races for other offices and you know it's become something of a phenomenon in the area so when this congressional seat opened up uh that takes in some of pittsburgh and surrounding areas in the mon valley uh she announced early and and you know looked looked to be a very strong candidate her opponent her main opponent a guy named steve Irwin was a Democratic Party insider who had been around for a long time, uh, you know, had a lot of appointed positions, hadn't been elected to anything. Uh, and so it, initially it looked like Lee was in pretty good shape, but then you saw this massive infusion of outside money. Uh, and I was tracking it on a regular basis. I would go and check and it would go up uh, each day by like three or $400,000. Uh, to now the combined spending against her looking in the range of $3.3 million. I should say against her and for her opponent. So it's a little so, bit of combination. So um, why did the, the pro-Israel PACs uh, go against her? They say their mission, APAC says its mission is to elect strong supporters of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Was that what this campaign was about? Well, it's an interesting thing. Uh, there was some element of that because Summer Lee, like a lot of Democrats now, uh, has a very nuanced view of the Middle East. She is supportive of uh, the rights of Israelis and Palestinians. And so she's very similar to uh, the group J Street, uh, which we've talked about before. And in fact, J Street said very complimentary things about her in this campaign. Another group, Ben the Ark Jewish Action, uh, was organizing on the ground on behalf of her campaign. And so the notion that, that Summer Lee was somehow, you know, way outside the bounds of our contemporary discourse or something like that was absurd. Um, and so, it, you know, it, it, there was clearly some uh, discomfort with her on the part of some of these groups, perhaps related to Israel-Palestine. But there was also something else going on, and that was that uh, you saw the criticism of 
summer league, not about Middle East issues, but about, um, you know, this, this claim that she was a bad Democrat. Yeah. That, you know, Israel Palestine wasn't mentioned in any of the ads, any of the attacks or anything like that. It was all that, oh, she's a bad Democrat. And the thing that made her a quote unquote, you know, disloyal or bad Democrat was the fact that uh, as a uh, candidate, as a legislator, she had talked a lot about reforming the Democratic Party and making it more responsive to economic and social and racial justice issues, uh, more focused on climate, more focused on, you know, a, a, a kind of a broad progressive uh, agenda, very similar to that of Bernie Sanders, who she backed for president. But the attacks on her actually had pictures of Donald Trump and Joe Biden and suggesting that she had a hard time choosing between them. <laughs> now, the the lie of this was so overwhelming because in the run up to the 2020 election, Bernie Sanders had come into the Pittsburgh area, along with the United Electrical Union and Summer Lee to hold a major rally to get out progressive voters for Joe Biden. <laughs> and so I, it was just a, a deeply dishonest campaign, but it was so heavily funded and so intense, just wall-to-wall -wall advertising and mailings and, and all sorts of communications that there really did, uh, you know, it certainly closed the gap in the race and there developed a lot of concern that Summer Lee might lose, might lose this contest. Yeah, Not she because she was the best candidate. <clears throat> she started out with a 25-point advantage in the polls and then she won by less than one point. So $3.4 million in, in uh, attack ads uh, did have an effect. I saw that her opponent, this this uh, Steve Irwin, uh, was endorsed by a lot of the big unions in Pittsburgh, the steel workers, a lot of the craft yeah. unions. It's never good to see uh, unions working to defeat progressive leaders. No, it's always frustrating. And, you know, Irwin had, uh, he came out of a law firm that, that did some labor work. Uh, it's often sometimes criticized for not always being on the right side of every struggle. But uh, it is important to note that Summerlee did have the support of uh, United Electrical. And I know on the national scale, a lot of people may not know United Electrical that well, but UE is one of the uh, oldest progressive unions in the United States, and it's headquartered in Pittsburgh and has deep, deep roots in the Mon Valley and, and the regions around there. And, uh, and, you know, I've had people say to me, including Bernie Sanders, that, you know, if you're running for office and you want somebody to have your back, uh, UE is, is a union you want to have there. And uh, it was notable that when Summer Lee did her victory speech uh, on early Wednesday morning, uh, there was a UE banner right next to her. So, uh, and, and also the other thing that Summer Lee did have in this race, which I think was hugely important, is, uh, you know, in politics so much uh, or so often, we do talk about the money on TV and, and all the, you know, uh, the kind of insider traditional stuff. She had a movement. She had grassroots uh, backing from a lot of young people. And it's really important to note that in the um, Pittsburgh area, Democratic Socialists of America and other progressive groups uh, have really gained a lot of traction in recent years. There are movement uh, groupings there. And that, I think, helped her a great deal. So let's move now from uh, from Pittsburgh to North Carolina, where the story was not so good for progressive candidates, where two 
progressive candidates for the House were defeated by the pro-Israel forces. Uh, the first seat was in Durham and Chapel Hill, where there's a safe Democratic seat. Biden won here uh, easily. The progressive candidate was a county commissioner named Nita Alam, a Bernie Sanders supporter who would have been North Carolina's first Muslim member of Congress. But she was she only got 37% of the vote after uh, almost $3 million in attack ads on her for her opponent, Senator Valerie Fushi. Uh, tell us about that campaign and about Nita Alam. Well, I think that uh, Alam was a very impressive candidate, and she did have strong support from Bernie Sanders uh, and, and from a lot of activists. But, you know, look, uh, when you're in a situation like this, when you're having this huge amount of money being spent against you, you know, literally... Uh, trying to slow you down. In some races, it's going to work. And and I mean, we, you and I, John, we've talked for many, many times uh, about money in politics. And it's something that, that we do have to understand. With all the issues we talk about, with all the, um, you know, the practical realities of political campaigns, uh, overwhelming infusions of money into races where candidates may not be exceptionally well-known uh, can have a profound impact. One of the things where I think you see a difference between the North Carolina race and the um, Pennsylvania race is that in Pennsylvania, Summer Lee was a very, very high profile individual. So the attacks on her, certainly they had an impact. I think that, you know, that they, they drew her numbers down, but um, they, I think, did not have quite the impact that they had, obviously, in the two North Carolina races. And, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about other races, I think, probably in Oregon and places like that. Uh, but as you look across the country, this is a fundamental reality. And what we are seeing is that um, in many races, we now have three campaigns. We have, you know, maybe a progressive candidate, a centrist candidate, and then we have the big money. <laughs> and, and the big money uh, can sometimes really put its thumb on the scale in favor of that more centrist candidate. And the other defeat we had in North Carolina was Erica Smith, who ran for an open safe Democratic seat up by the uh, uh, Virginia border. Um, this was upsetting because the, the mainstream candidate, a black man named Don Davis, uh, was the only Democrat in the state legislature to vote in favor of funding an anti-abortion so-called crisis crisis pregnancy center and he was often one of just a small handful of democrats to vote to defund planned parenthood uh in in the in the state uh uh erica smith tried to make this an issue uh how come that guy won and the progressive lost well of course if you had a lot more money to make it an issue it might help right yeah. i mean again uh, when you've been facing attack ads for a long time and, and you know, one candidate's been get built up for a long time, uh, an issue comes in. And if you've got a lot of resources, you can sometimes, you know, move the balance. But uh, it's uh, I, I think that that I would caution against assuming that the abortion issue doesn't ultimately have a lot of traction. I think it does. And I think we actually saw some races around the country, uh, even yesterday, where where it was. It was a factor. I think we may see it being a factor down in the in the yeah. Texas runoff election next week for Jessica Cisneros. But um, yeah, it's just the truth that that uh, you had a senior legislator who did have a lot of in the winner in that district had a lot of name recognition, 
he was more conservative player. Uh, I will counsel also that that you know districts are different as well. You do have some districts where yeah. uh, the Democratic Party is not as progressive yeah. as in other places, and so I think that was sort of a factor in North Carolina. Well, and the the, the other factor was that the the establishment really came out against Erica Smith. The Congressional Black Caucus endorsed her opponent. The state AFL-CIO endorsed her opponent. Uh, Representative Jim Clyburn, the kingmaker of uh, North Carolina politics, uh, uh, endorsed her opponent. Her endorsers included Planned Parenthood Action Fund and NARAL Pro-Choice America and Katie Porter, <laughs> but uh, that wasn't anywhere near enough, uh, enough to do it. So the establishment really flexed its muscles in this one. In North Carolina, yeah. there's, there's no doubt of it. And you know, look, uh, this is this is going to be one of the realities of of this this kind of election season as we go forward. What you're going to see is um, a, a real battle between centrists and progressives. People shouldn't deny that. They shouldn't look away from it anymore. They've got to start to recognize that this is a fundamental reality. This is what's in play, and um, and frankly, media has to do a much better job of covering these races. And covering, you know, the uh, vehicles by which corporate interests, which often back Republicans, are coming into Democratic primaries and having an impact. And, and I, I really want to emphasize this. I wrote about this in, in the piece I did on Pennsylvania. Uh, I went down that list of donors and many of the donors to the groups that were attacking Summer Lee uh, have also funded Republicans. Yeah. I mean, you know, literally... Uh, people like Jim Jordan and folks like that. So you see this kind of warping of the process by uh, by this money. And it's, you know, boy, I wish I could give you good news today, John, but I'm going to tell you, it's going to get worse yeah. uh, because we have a Supreme Court right now that seems to be bent on, you know, tearing down every uh, limit on corporate money and special interest money. And, you know, with a recent ruling, even the bribery of U.S. senators. Mm. Well, let's talk about Oregon, where uh, the guy we call the Joe Manchin of the House, uh, Kurt Schrader, the Democratic in incumbent, faced a primary challenger from Jamie McLeod Skinner. This is a very tight race. Uh, we're taping on uh, Wednesday at midday. Uh, what's going on in Oregon? Yeah, well, Oregon always kind of makes it tough for us because they have you know overwhelming mail-in balloting. Yeah. And so as a result, they actually do something that, you know, you might refer to as democracy. And um, they, you know, you, you can mail the ballot in until the end of the day on Tuesday. So that means that, that ballot, a lot of those ballots don't arrive until Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, even into the start of the next week. There's nothing wrong with that. That's how, you know, we make sure that a lot of people get to vote. But it is a real bummer for pundits and, and uh, you know, the next morning because you've you got to wait for some of the votes to come in. Now, here's the, the deal. In that race, Skinner looks to be way ahead, at least in this initial vote. And she had a, a high level of support from county parties throughout the district. Uh, she was a progressive. There's no question of that. But she had a lot of on-the-ground support from the, the party members themselves there and people have been longtime Democrats because they were very frustrated with uh, Schrader, who was, uh, you know, he at one point referred to the impeachment of Donald Trump as a lynching. Uh, I mean, this is a Democrat, right? Uh, he was somebody who broke with the Democrats on a host of issues um, and 
you know, he's heads the Blue Dogs, uh, their pack and stuff like that. This is a, this guy is not, you know, even a mainstream moderate Democrat. He's actually quite conservative. And um, and so Skinner really, you know, tore into that. She also ran a very, very progressive campaign. She did have support from a lot of uh, progressive groups, uh, Working Families Party and others. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, we'll see. And I, you always have to be careful with this. But I think that the size of her lead is such that there's a, a quite good chance that she's going to displace Schrader. There's one other race that I, I really want to talk to you about just because it's so much fun. John Fetterman won yeah. easily for the Democratic candidate for governor <laughs> of Pennsylvania, a key state to our future and the future of the world. Tell us about John Fetterman, a wonderful candidate. He's a remarkable candidate, to say the least. Uh, John Fetterman is six feet, eight inches tall. <laughs> For starters, uh, that's a good place to start. Yeah, he stands out in a crowd or he stands above the crowd. Yeah. He is um, uh, he wears usually he dresses a lot like you, John. He wears a hoodie <laughs> and short pants, uh, gym shorts, uh, including on the campaign trip. Uh, he uh, he rarely dresses up. Um, he's very, very blunt, uh, very anti-corporate, very critical of corporate power and stuff like that. Uh, big supporter of criminal justice reform, uh, support of Medicare for all. He was a Bernie Sanders backer in 2016. He's a controversial guy. He's said and done things that have angered a lot of folks over the years, including some progressives. So it's important to understand he's not always. It, it, it's you got to be cautious about painting him as a perfect figure, uh, but. He is a fascinating figure, and um, he had a theory in running for this Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate. He's currently the lieutenant governor there in Pennsylvania, and that was uh, his message was every county counts. Now, Pennsylvania is historically described as a state with uh, Pittsburgh on one side, Philadelphia on the other, and Alabama in the middle. <laughs> yes, uh, and it's a very unfair characterization of Pennsylvania because there are progressive Democrats and working class Democrats in the middle of Pennsylvania too. But that, that, that kind of dismissive approach has led to a politics in Pennsylvania where a lot of the, the emphasis goes on Philadelphia and its suburbs, Pittsburgh and its suburbs, not as much, you know, outstate. Fetterman went all over the state. He went to a lot of counties that tended to vote, have voted Republican in the past, uh, spent a lot of time in places where Democrats don't usually go. And the amazing thing was he won all 67 counties running against Connor Lamb, a, a Democratic congressman who had plenty of money and, and the support of a, a lot of elected officials, party organizations. And so uh, Fetterman's got he has an approach here that is uh, one that sort of upsets the apple cart that does a different different kind of approach on politics. Now, he's got work to do. This is going to be, you know, one of the two most targeted Senate races in the country. Uh, at this point, we don't even know who his opponent will be because the Republican primary is so closely divided, uh, but it may be Dr. Oz. And uh, so what Betterman's gonna have to do is unite the Democratic Party. And that means he's gonna have to work hard in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, uh, especially Philadelphia, to make sure that he gets out a large vote from the, the Democratic base. But then um, he does have this theory, and we'll see how it works, that he could expand the Democratic vote, expand the base, you know, more broadly. And um, if he pulls it off, if he pulls it off, uh, he would be a remarkable addition to the United States Senate. 
it's important to understand that in the battleground state of Pennsylvania, candidates who, you know, pretty much ran, you know, to the left on a lot of issues, uh, got, you know, a lot of votes. And maybe that's, maybe that's the lesson we ought to take away that, uh, yeah, the money's very powerful, but as Summer Lee said, uh, after her, at, at her victory party, you know, sometimes we can have nice things. Sometimes we can have nice things. John Nichols, read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Great talking to Pleasure. you today. John, it is always an honor to be with you on the in the aftermath of an interesting election. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Progressive prosecutors have been pushing for criminal justice reform for a while now, seeking to end mass incarceration, to deal with police misconduct, and focus resources on protecting the public from serious and violent crime. Starting with Larry Krasner in Philadelphia in 2017, then Chesa Boudin in San Francisco in 2019, and then George Gascon in Los Angeles in 2020, also Chicago, Detroit, now several other places, Progressive prosecutors have won election, defeating traditional law and order prosecutors across the country. Of course, the defeated law and order forces have been pushing back. Larry Krasner won re-election, but in Los Angeles, George Gascon is the target right now of a recall campaign, which has a deadline of July 6th to turn in 560 signatures needed to get recall on the ballot in November. And right now in San Francisco, opponents of Chesa Boudin collected enough signatures to force a recall vote on June 7th. Chesa Boudin joins us now. He's the elected district attorney of San Francisco City and County. He's also a contributor to The Nation magazine. The last time he was here, we talked about children growing up with parents in prison. He was one of them. Chesa Boudin, welcome back. Good to be with you, John. Thanks for having me. I was sorry to see that your mother, Kathy Boudin, died on May 1st. She was a big figure in my life and a lot of other people of our generation. We were about the same age. We both grew up in the 60s. We were in, both in Students for a Democratic Society. At the end of the 60s, she joined the Weather Underground and ended up serving 22 years in prison. You were just over a year old at the time of her trial. In prison, she transformed herself in a powerful and moving way, and she was released in 2003. Could you just say a few words about her life, her political ideas, and her transformation? Well, John, obviously, um, I can say the same thing you can. My mother loomed large in my life as well <laughs> as she did, and in, 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 in apparently many other people's. Uh, she was not just um, the mother who brought me into the world, kicking and screaming, um, she was not just um, the person who I came to love the way that sons love their mothers. She was also someone who was really inspirational to me and to countless others. Because like all of us, she made mistakes. She was human and she was fallible. And in her case, the mistakes she made were really, really costly. Uh, to her, to me, to our family, yes. But more importantly, to the lives of the three men who were killed in 
the crime for which she ended up serving 22 years in prison. And she took lessons from that tragedy and from those mistakes, lessons that didn't change her fundamental values or the way she interacted with the people closest to her, but that changed the tactics she was willing to use and the strategy and grounded her in humanism and nonviolence. And almost immediately after she landed in state prison, she began dedicating herself to the betterment of her community and of herself. She was the first woman in the history of the state of New York to earn her master's degree while in prison. She co-founded and co-led a AIDS education group that was a peer-taught group by other incarcerated women and became a national model for preventing the spread of HIV AIDS at a time when that disease was a death sentence. And she led bilingual literacy classes for many of the other women incarcerated who couldn't even read or write at the time of their incarceration. And she also led parenting programs to help other women in prison find ways to show the love for their children, even from the distance that their incarceration created. When my mom was released in 2003, I, I had just graduated from college and I was heading off to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship and beginning my life, uh, secondary educational life. And I don't think either one of us could have predicted, despite the, the really strong relationship we had built during her years of incarceration, I don't think either one of us could have predicted all of the ways in which our relationship would grow and strengthen over the time um, since she was released, particularly given how hard she was working uh, during that period. She earned her doctoral degree from Columbia. She worked at Roosevelt St. Luke's Hospital, uh, establishing a medical program for people coming home from prison who had HIV AIDS and other uh, very serious diseases and needed healthcare in the community. Um, and she ultimately went on to found and co-direct the Center for Justice at Columbia University and other groups like the Release Aging uh, Prisoners on Parole Project, uh, RAP as it's known. She was a force of nature. And one of the things that everybody says about her, people who only met her once, who've been reaching out to me uh, over the days since she died, is that she was the most intense listener people have ever met. She cared and was interested in learning from and hearing from people she met from all walks of life. Um, she had an ability to convey that, that interest and to really be present and listening in an era when most of us are lost in our own train of thoughts or uh, faces buried in our telephone or computer screens. As her son, of course, it was all the, all the more so. She would drop everything every time I called. Uh, she was absolutely and totally committed to being an unconditionally loving and supportive mother to me, uh, mother-in-law to my wife. And for the few months that they overlapped on this planet, to my son, her only grandson. If our listeners want to find out more about Kathy Boudin, The Nation has published a piece by Jeff Jones and Eleanor Stein, and another one by Elizabeth Gaines. Well, let's talk about the movement to elect progressive prosecutors. Remind us about the ideas behind this movement, ideas you share with Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, George Gascon in LA, and several of the other elected colleagues of yours. To understand the progressive prosecutor movement, you have to understand what it's a movement in response to or, or what the alternatives are. And so the tough on crime 
rhetoric that has so defined district attorneys' offices and campaigns for well over 100 years in this country is rhetoric that basically focuses the resources of the district attorney on sending as many people to prison for as long as possible, usually poor people of color. And it's policies and practices that led us to a system known as mass incarceration. For folks who aren't familiar with that term, it's a term that describes the reality of the United States locking up more people than any other country in the history of the planet. It's an approach that has not made our community safer. It's failed to rehabilitate people who commit crime. It has failed to treat victims like human beings and to provide services and supports for survivors of crime. And it's a system that has so over-invested in law enforcement and jails and prisons that it's bankrupted local governments of the resources that are needed to actually prevent crimes proactively. Education, housing, jobs, healthcare, the things that we know are necessary to have safe and vibrant communities. And so the progressive prosecutor movement is a response to that failure in which folks like myself and the others you've mentioned, Kim Fox in Chicago, Kim Gardner in St. Louis, Rachel Rollins in Boston and more across the country have run for the office of district attorney with a specific commitment to reduce mass incarceration, to start focusing resources on treatment and addressing root causes of crime rather than simply punishment and vindictive justice, to expand restorative justice instead of punitive justice. It's a movement that recognizes to have integrity, to have public trust. Prosecutors must not only prosecute the poor people arrested for shoplifting or for selling drugs, but we must also prosecute police when they use excessive force. We must also prosecute corporate crooks who steal wages from their employees. We must also go after the manufacturers of guns that are being used to commit violent crimes in our communities. In other words, we need to build a system of justice that works for everybody, not just the wealthy and well-connected. And let's talk about San Francisco. Uh, how have you done on fulfilling the promises you made to the voters who elected you? It's been a difficult uh, two years in office. Just a couple months after I was sworn in, the COVID pandemic shut down our city, shut me out of my office and reduced our courts to about 10% of their normal capacity. Um, since then, I faced two separate recall attempts, one of which is, is still pending as we talk today. So we've had a lot of obstacles we never could have predicted. But despite all that, uh, I'm really proud of the work my office has done uh, during the first half of my first term in office. Let me give you a few examples of the ways in which we've tried to fulfill our promises to voters. You know, we talked about ending mass incarceration and sure enough, in my first year, we managed to close one part of our county jail. We also managed to reduce the number of kids in our juvenile detention facility by about 70% from peak to trough. And the way we made those jail reductions was through really intentional decisions about the individuals incarcerated. It, look, we had high level policies, ending cash bail, creating an independent innocence commission to exonerate people who've been wrongfully convicted, resentencing people who'd been in prison far longer than public safety required. And, and that work has resulted in uh, resentencing nearly 70 individuals. Uh, but it was also a detail-oriented approach to every single individual person housed in our county jail, where we took seriously the mantra that jail should be a last resort, not a primary response to social problems. 
So I want to just give you one example of the ways in which during the COVID pandemic, at a time when we didn't have a vaccine, when we didn't understand fully what the implications of the disease were, but we knew it was deadly. And we heard from medical experts in jail health services across the country that jails and prisons created the perfect conditions for the deadly spread of COVID-19. Well, our jail medical staff identified for us a young woman serving a county jail sentence for her first ever conviction, a misdemeanor property crime. And they told us that she was pregnant and it was a high risk pregnancy. So we looked at the case, we looked at the history, we worked with our re-entry partners and we found a residential prenatal facility that was willing to take this young woman in. We asked the judge to reduce her sentence to time served and we got her transported directly from the jail to the prenatal facility where she stayed the course, she stayed sober. She graduated from the program and she gave birth to a healthy baby that I'm proud to tell you she is still a loving, caring mother for. It's that kind of approach, case by case, individual human beings, where we identified folks who didn't need to be in the jail. And in fact, we were making San Francisco safer by getting her out of the jail and into the place that she and that child in her belly needed to be. We also followed through on our commitment to expand services for victims. I wanna give you a few examples of that. Every single budget that I've ever submitted to the mayor and our board of supervisors has asked for more money for victim services. And though we haven't ever gotten everything we asked for, we've made really significant progress. We started a pilot program to reimburse small businesses that were being vandalized or having their windows broken during the pandemic. That pilot was so successful, it's now a citywide operation. We also recognize the need to increase language access, particularly for San Francisco's diverse immigrant communities in our Asian American Pacific Islander communities. I hired and promoted to the head of victim services, the first ever Chinese American head of San Francisco DA victim services. And we increased the number of Chinese speaking staff in our office by more than 500% during this time period. We also recognize that when victims of crime go to court, all too often traditional district attorneys treat them like pieces of evidence to help secure a criminal conviction. They only give interpreters when the person is testifying as evidence. But we know that many victims of crime want to understand the proceedings. They wanna know what's happening in the case, what arguments are being made, what rulings the judge is handing down. And so we implemented a policy, the first in the state that requires my team to request court certified interpreters to assist any victim or witness while they're observing court proceedings in their case. And we didn't stop there. At the beginning of the pandemic, we recognized that domestic violence survivors were being forced to shelter in place with their abusers. And so we joined forces with Airbnb and with the City Hall and with other agencies around the state to create short, medium and long-term housing opportunities so that victims of domestic violence and their children could find safe haven during the pandemic. We also recognize that one of the reasons many victims, especially in cases like sexual assault, don't come forward and cooperate with law enforcement is because they don't trust police or prosecutors or the process to protect them and their privacy. And in fact, we identified a situation, shocking, horrifying, where the San Francisco Police Department Crime Lab was storing the DNA profile of sexual assault survivors without their consent in a database that was used for investigations totally unrelated to the sexual assault 
for which they had submitted their bodies to such a intense, investigative, intrusive investigative process. And we, rose, we raised awareness about that practice. We demanded change. We dismissed the case against the victim of sexual assault whose DNA was being used against her. And we sponsored state legislation in Sacramento that will prohibit any law enforcement agency from across the state from ever using victims' DNA against them. We want to send a loud and clear message to survivors of crime, especially violent crime. We see you, we hear you, we stand with you, and we will protect your privacy. The other core promise we, we made was to expand accountability for those in power, to, to enforce the laws equally. And, and look, in some ways, this was the most radical promise that I made to voters. Um, it shouldn't be because it's enshrined in our country's founding documents. It's chiseled in stone above most courthouses in America. And yet for generations, those in power have been able to commit crimes and violate the law with impunity. So we filed the first ever homicide charges against a San Francisco police department officer who while on duty shot and killed an unarmed black man. And we took to trial the first ever excessive force case against a different San Francisco police officer for using a baton to break the bones of an unarmed black man. And we filed another case, homicide charges against a police officer who shot and killed an unarmed black man on the steps of his own home. It's that kind of work, holding police accountable. The lawsuit we filed against ghost gun manufacturers, the company's profiting off of shipping illegal firearms into our communities, designed to be used in crimes. The work we've done filing political corruption cases against those in government who abuse the public trust. The work we've done in our worker protection unit that's filed landmark lawsuits against gig economy companies whose entire business model is based on stealing from their employees and from taxpayers systematically misclassifying people so that they don't have to pay minimum wage, workers' compensation, unemployment insurance, paid sick leave, or provide PPE to people working through the pandemic. The work we're doing to promote public safety and to actually hold those in power to account has made some very powerful people angry, some people with deep pockets, the police unions, the, the billionaires in their boardrooms of Silicon Valley gig economy companies. And those folks are, are used to and, in fact, demand impunity when they violate the law, but not on my watch. We have to talk about crime rates. The challenge to you in here in LA focuses on crime rates, which officially have been going up. Your opponents say you are responsible for that. Let's talk about crime rates. Sure. Well, you know, one thing about crime rates is they change day to day. There's lots of different ways to measure them. Um, and there's lots of different categories of crime. So, you know, let me put it this way. In the two and a bit years I've been in office, the number of reported crimes in San Francisco has declined. There have been 26,000 fewer reported crimes during the time I've been in office than compared to the exact same time period prior to my administration. The overall rate of reported crimes like rape is down 47%, robbery down 26%, assault down nearly 10% during the time I've been in office. Overall property crime is also down. Um, we've seen a massive decline in theft crimes during the period I've been in office, a 31% decline in reported thefts, comparing the time I've been in office with the exact same time period before my administration. But those statistics don't mean anything 
to someone who themselves has been a victim of crime or to someone who's seen so many videos of crime on Twitter and next door or local news that they're living in fear. And I want to be crystal clear here. My job, my goal, the work I and my office do all day, every day is to keep San Francisco safe and to make sure that everybody is safe and also feels safe in their home, in their neighborhood and in our city. And until that's done, it doesn't matter what the data shows, we've got work to do. We need members of our community to feel safe. And that means we've got to do a more effective job communicating. We've got to do a more effective job holding people who commit crimes accountable. We've got to do a more effective job supporting victims of crime. And we've got to continue to innovate and be creative in the policies and the practices and the cases we bring that actually prevent crime from occurring in the first place. And if our listeners want to find out more about your work and uh, your campaign, uh, where can they go? A great place to start is chesaboudin.com. That's C-H-E-S-A-B-O-U-D-I-N.com. We've got a long list of our achievements of uh, the endorsers who are opposing this recall, including the San Francisco Democratic Party, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Bay Area Reporter, the Green Party, the ACLU, the Sierra Club, the San Francisco Labor Council the nurses union, the teachers union, the city college teachers union. We encourage people to look at the facts and look at the data and evaluate the work we've actually done and the circumstances in which we've been forced to do it. I know I and my office have a massive, massive job ahead of us. San Francisco has, like so many parts of this country, been relying on a failed approach to responding to crime and trying to promote safety. It took decades to build up the system of mass incarceration. I've only had two years to try and fix it. We've got work to do, and I'm committed to getting the job done for San Francisco. Jason Boudin is the elected district attorney of San Francisco. He's up for recall next month. Jason, thank you for all your work, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Good to speak with you. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livinginthusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.